Good morning. This is Forum Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. On this week's show, I'm talking with Fordham professor Dr. Mark Nason, who's been conducting research on the health and food disparities in the Bronx. Good morning, Professor Nason. It's great to be here. Now, explain to me your research. What exactly are you doing? Okay, I was invited to the Gastronomical University of Italy to give two sets of lectures. One is about health issues relating to eating in the Bronx, and the other is the Bronx as an ethnic foodscape, all the different ethnic cuisines that exist in the Bronx as a result of immigration. Because you wouldn't think of the Bronx as an ethnic cuisine place, It's really. an ethnic cuisine paradise, uh, but it's totally unknown to tourists. Um, and you can get great food at a fraction of Manhattan prices. So I went around eating in 12 different ethnic cuisines in the Bronx. Oh, hard job. Yeah, it was, you know, and, and I got paid for this. That got a trip to Italy out of it. So I, I so explain the research. So you ate at these 12 different places. And, and then, then I also started doing research on things like Chinese takeout. Now, here's you think of fast food. You think McDonald's. Right. You think of Burger King. You think of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Even Kennedy Fried Chicken, Brown, Taco Bell. There were three times as many Chinese takeout places in the Bronx as all fast food outlets put together. What does that mean? That means there are 180 Chinese takeout places in the Bronx, many of them across the street from housing projects or in the Bronx's, you know, poorer working class neighborhoods. Okay. Guess what the two most popular items serve? At Chinese takeouts in the Bronx. What? Wings and fries. Wow. Then comes rib tips, pork fried rice, and tostones. Now, wait, I have to ask about the wings and the fries because that's not traditional Chinese food. No is kidding. It? <laughs> uh, no, it's adapting to what the neighborhood needed. Needed or wanted? Both. Okay. Uh, needed because. All the other rest places left. You're talking about, you know, especially during the fires and the disinvestment period of um, of, of the 70s and then through, you know, the crack epidemic years for a long time, you know, in the Bronx's poorer neighborhoods, there were almost no places you could, you know, no restaurants left. So how did the Chinese restaurants um, survive? They developed a formula for having everything surrounded by glass. So you enter, it's a little spot, you you know, there's an opening, and be- everything is behind glass, and you put the food through. So it's, it's safe, and there's a huge market. And people are also, in these communities, are working all hours of day and night. So they figured, what do the people want? And they provided it in an affordable way. It's very interesting. My son was a, was, was a basketball player in Brooklyn going to a public junior high. When I asked him what the, um, you know, the, the things that served by Chinese takeout, he, he said right away, wings and fries, because that's what his teammates all got for lunch. Mm-hmm. So you have African-American and Puerto Rican food served by Chinese restaurants, which become the takeout of choice. So these restaurants are adapting to what it seems like the environments want, but they're not traditional and not really healthy, are they? Healthy. Uh, they're cheap. 
They're delicious. But so, the Bronx, this is the other problem. You cannot buy fresh fruits and vegetables, but you can get incredibly delicious, unhealthy food. In the Bronx. In the Bronx, which I am an expert at buying and eating. So before I did this research, I had these amazing spots in the Bronx. One of them is called Johnson's Barbecue. I discovered this in the early days of the Bronx African American History Project when I was doing oral histories in that neighborhood. And they said, oh, you have to try Johnson's Barbecue. They've been there 56 years. So I go in. It's this little hole-in-the-wall place. You can't buy drinks. You can't sit. (laughs) And an $11 plate of ribs and sides weighs six pounds. Wow. He has a sauce that's a mixture of a red sauce and a mustard sauce The chicken and ribs are to die for. But he also has the most amazing mac and cheese, candied yams, collard greens. So this is what's what's considered soul food in the African-American community, but it's also contributing to certain health problems like diabetes and obesity. He doesn't eat his own food. He's a vegetarian, Mr. Johnson. (laughs) But people come from all over. He's right across from the forest houses. Fat Joe comes there. You know The rapper? Uh, yeah, I mean, but it's interesting. Who are the two best rappers to come out of the Bronx? Big, Big Pun and Fat Joe. Mm-hmm. There's a huge obesity problem. Then I started going to Bengali, African, uh, Vietnamese, uh, West Indian. So I did, you know, I, I expanded. In other words, I was eating the wonderful tasting unhealthy food. Right. For- did you know it was unhealthy? You know, just like my, I'm, I, I pretty much wrecked my body my whole life. And, and, and uh, but you enjoyed the food. Yeah. You just knew it was unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, also my reputation in the Bronx as being a person of huge appetites. You know, I'm a ball player. I love music. I love food. Even though you're a Brooklyn guy, yeah. you still have more yeah. of a reputation here in the Bronx. Well, I have a reputation in Brooklyn too. <laughs> uh, but, so, how did this all parlay into this research? Okay. Here's the thing: I had this uh, food scholar named Simone Chinato, who also does research on African American culture, who came to my um, rock and roll to hip hop class to give a lecture about Italian Americans' race and popular music. And he teaches at the uh, Gastronomical University of Italy. And when he found out about my research, he wanted to figure a way to bring me over. So he said, why don't you do research on Bronx food? And you said, heck yeah. So that meant I had to eat in a lot of places I hadn't eaten in before. Which, gee, that's a tough job. <laughs> so you so you traveled around? Around the Bronx. Now, I, I never went anywhere without personal recommendations. Okay. In other words, I didn't, first of all, there's not a guidebook to Bronx food unless I write one. Which I think you might eventually. Uh, um, <laughs> so I said, okay, I know there's a South Asian community in the Bronx. And I decided I had to have lunch with a couple of people from the uh, Bronx Museum of the Arts. So I invite them to meet me there. The three of us had an amazing lunch for $19. Amazing, fat-filled. No, not necessarily. Lunch. It's a little healthier because, you know, uh, South Asian food has a lot of vegetables. So what did you have? I had uh, sag, which is this wonderful spinach dish, and, you know, some curry. And... Is there a large South Asian population in the yes. Bronx? They're oh. growing, and it's very heavily Islamic. A lot of the people are from Bangladesh. So the, we were the only non-South Asian people there. 
and but it was unbelievably friendly, unbelievably good, and un. And, and what were you looking for, Professor Nason, when you're eating this food? Are you looking for the taste? Are you looking for the health? Like, what is what? I'm looking at who eats there. Mm-hmm. So you know, when this is a na- the all the people in the neighborhood are eating there, and they're coming in for takeout. And who are the people in the neighborhood? They're all the South Asian people. Okay. So you know, we were the white Latino black people eating in with the South Asians, but everybody was incredibly friendly. It, the food was sort of, um, you know, you came up to a counter and it was out in front of you. So they served you and you went to your table. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I've eaten in Indian restaurants in Manhattan. This is a third the price and just as good. Yeah, yeah. And you could even park there. So so did you find, Professor Nason, that um, you had, you said that, South Asians were frequenting these South Asian restaurants, but but it seemed like African Americans were frequenting Chinese restaurants. Right. Why? Because there are very few African American uh, owned restaurants in the Bronx. So um, one of the things that's happening is middle class African Americans in the Bronx are moving down south. The fastest growing portions of the black population in the Bronx are West African and West Indian. And are they bringing their food with oh, them? Oh, hell yes. So don't don't worry. I've been there, too. So uh, I'm trying to understand, what was the purpose of your research? What were you trying to figure out or trying to find out? I, I was trying to get a way to go to Italy. <laughs> and I figured, um, since no one ever, and, ever did this... Do you know, okay, I mean, that you know. Did what? No one ever took a, a taste tour of the Bronx and, 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 and talked then, about and, it? And lectured in Europe about it. What uh, was your, what'd your lecture consist of? What, what, what were the, what were they? Okay, the first thing I did, they then asked me to expand and talk about health issues. It turns out the Bronx has both the highest hunger rates and the highest obesity rates of any place in New York State. Now, that sounds like two total opposite ends, hunger and obesity. They co- actually call it the Bronx Syndrome. That what you have is people who are uh, not getting fruits and vegetables, who are eating, you know, with limited budgets, large amounts of chips, you know. Large amounts of unhealthy foods. Of of unhealthy, greasy food. Because it's inexpensive. Yeah. Um, So you binge. Sometimes you starve and sometimes you binge. But when you binge, what are you going to... You, you get the most filling thing, and you'll get a, a, a big bottle of soda and chips when you're hungry. Right. In other words, I, I've, I've had personal testimony about the hunger problems in the Bronx. Explain the hunger problem, because okay. I, could see, I can understand the, the part about, you know, getting the cheapest food, and that's usually the ones that's processed. But how does that contribute? How does... Well, well let me explain to you an experience that, that I had with a colleague of mine, Dr. Jane Edward. We went to visit an elementary school in the middle of the Claremont houses. There are about 150 of the students in this elementary school are recent African immigrants, and they had hired a social worker particularly to work with the African children and families. Most of them were Muslim. So we go visit the classes. It's all like seems very nice. Then the principal closes the door and says, let me tell you what goes on here. On Friday, the kids start crying because they're afraid that they might not eat over the weekend because they serve three meals a day in the school, five days a week. 
there's no health center any nearby, so all the parents and siblings come in for the school nurse. He said, tell people about it. This is the land that God forgot. People, you know, this recession has hit people hard. And, you know, and, and families are living doubled and tripled up. Rents are high, you know. So there's, you know, there's a food access problem. And, and let me tell you something else. I mean, I had a student visit every single grocery store, supermarket, and food place in two neighborhoods around the Arthur Avenue, Crotona neighborhood in South Fordham. Out of 106 food stores, eight sold fresh fruits and vegetables. You simply can't get them here. Why? Um, because the stores won't carry them because people don't have money and they'll spoil. They're yeah, expensive. Yeah. Fruits and veggies do kind of spoil quickly. Yeah. So people, I guess, don't waste people their money on them? Well, people don't have money. I mean, again, you're going to get rice because it's going to, or potatoes, because it's going or to chips. Last. It's going to fill you up. It's going to fill your stomach up. Now they do have. Um, I know the Bronx has been called a food desert. That's which is, exactly right. Is is what um, the, the idea term. of not having uh, fruits and vegetables accessible? But they also started these little green markets. Yeah, where it, certain very few, and there are a few of those around, like six. <laughs> it's it's it has no impact whatsoever. You don't think it's helpful at all? Yeah, if there were six hundred. Right. Not six. I mean, my neighborhood and I live now in Park Slope, which is Yuppie City. And you know, there's all these, you know, Korean growths. Every place sells fresh fruit and vegetables. You know, there's a place every two blocks. And then there's none of this in the Bronx. So, Professor Nason, are you also saying, so we understand that there aren't enough um, ways for for residents in the Bronx to receive healthier foods, healthy at least fruits and veggies. What do you say to people who say, well, you know what, the residents can have a choice. They have a choice to eat these bad foods. What do you say to critics who say that? They're choosing to be unhealthy by eating these bad foods. They don't have a choice because, A, they couldn't afford the healthier foods, and, B, they're not there. You, you're going to go shopping in, like, the Upper West Side? How? You, most people don't drive. If you drive, you couldn't park. And plus, it's expensive. Plus, a lot of people here work two or three jobs. So they don't have the time they don't or have the, the resources. Time. That's why the Chinese takeout. You're coming back from your second job at 11 at night. It's open. You get your wings and fries, and you can feed your family for $8. I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV, talking with Fordham professor Dr. Mark Nason, who's conducting research on health and food disparities in the Bronx. Professor Nason, you also say the Bronx isn't just a food desert, but also an exercise desert. Exactly. Explain what you mean by that. Part of it is that young people are not, and, and older people are not getting a chance to, you know, to get regular exercise. Now, when I was growing up, the schools in, in all of New York City were open three to five and seven to nine for after school recreational programs in their gyms. Those programs were removed in the 70s and never returned. 
So you have all these gymnasiums that are empty in the evening that could be used by local residents. Why aren't they? Because there's no funding. Um, And now all the emphasis is on, again, standardized tests. You know, they're actually canceling gym and resource to have kids study for tests because now the new protocol is if you don't reach a certain, like, test level, they close the school and fire, you know, or remove half of the teachers. So everybody in the Bronx is terrified that their school is going to be closed. So they're taking these initiatives to cut back on on exercise programs to allow students to have more time to study so that their grades go up so the schools don't close and so the teachers don't lose their jobs. Exactly. And the children aren't getting any chance to exercise either at gym or after school. Exactly. And then they go home and they eat these fried wings and these chips in these chips and there. Oh, well, there's a, far, a great line from a song whose title I can't tell you that blank blank s blank blank by big pun and one line is iverson crossover cheese doodles grape soda which are the food in the bronx yeah <laughs> that's pretty much okay people now know the, to eat. Uh, but i left out one other thing guess how many pizzerias there are in the bronx how many pizzerias? three thousand so people eat a lot of pizza yeah pizza wings and fries but pizza's sort of healthy, isn't it? Some tomato sauce, some bread. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> With the grease dripping off the, you know. I mean, think about wings, fries, tostones, and pizza. So what's the answer, Dr. Nason? What, how, how do don't, we get You don't people want me the to give you the answer. I want you to give me the answer. I mean, we need a revolution in uh, how uh, health care, food, education are run in this country. Okay. That... You know, we have to love our children enough so that every child has enough to eat, every child has enough exercise. Uh, and I think we should have farms in our schools. That We have all these, uh, you know, ways of doing agriculture on roofs, uh, in, you know, in uh, hydroponics. Uh, it, it, so I think that at food production and food preparation should be part of every school curriculum now. But how, if I'm playing a devil's advocate, how do we get that as part of the school curriculum when they're saying we don't have enough money to fund kids running around in a gym? Well, I think you take the money away from the tests mm-hmm. and put it into exercise and, and, and healthy eating. We have, we're, we, we're doing everything backwards. We, you know, I think... Uh, and who is making money from the tests? Hmm. The, the test companies, some of which are in, in global conglomerates like Pearson, the, the the software consultants. Is the money from those tests going to people in the Bronx? It's going to people in England. It's going to, you know, let's. So you have the consultants who tell you that, you know, your school needs to change in this particular way so that you can get these race to the top dollars, yeah. which I, I believe New York just lost right. out on. Right. Um, and the and, money goes to them. And it also goes to Pearson, which is a private global corporation, which produces all the tests. So for profit. So it sounds like you're saying there's a bit. Uh, I hate to use the word conspiracy, but there's a a, a a sort of move by corporations to control people with no money. I think what you have some people. I have a friend named Henry Taylor who has something he calls. We have the misery industries, the prison industrial complex, and the educational industrial complex. Private interests seize upon the problems of the poor 
as a way of getting an organizational uh, connection for private prisons, you know, uh, uh, private school, charter schools, consulting firms, test companies. And who is being helped? Who, where is this money going? So you're saying it's only helping a small amount of people on a, uh, in a large scale, only a few people are getting helped? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, it's, and, and I think that this whole emphasis on testing is, is you, I think you start with the health of the child and then move outward, not with preparing the child for what? What is sitting all day studying for tests prepare you for? Working in Walmart? Why do you think they're more concerned with the testing than they are with how the student does when they're out in the real world? I think that you, you would have to ask the people at the U.S. Department of Education. In the, they're saying they're making these young people ready for a global economy. But if their health is being shattered, their mental and physical health is being shattered in the process, you know, uh, there are too many casualties, Professor Nason, you also said in the in the in the respect of of food being connected to uh, some of the problems that are the obesity problem, the lack of food um, availability in the Bronx. You also said at one point in some of your writings that public policy, housing policies seem to have a problem or seem to be contributing to the problem of these food deserts in the Bronx. Can you explain that? Well, I think we've rebuilt all these previously decayed areas. But we haven't put in youth centers and we haven't put in places where, you know, people can have access to healthy food. There are a few organizations now like WEDCO, Women's Housing and Economic Development Corporation, which are producing green buildings with gardens on the roof. It seems to me every time you're putting up um, a new housing development, it should have a recreation facility and a rooftop garden where food can be grown. These have to become priorities for every area of policy, from education for housing to urban planning. Uh, Recreation, exercise, and healthy food. There should be farms all over the Bronx. Every school should have a farm. Every housing complex should have a farm. And children should have ample opportunities for exercise. And let me give you an example of this. I had a secretary a few years ago with a daughter who was like a super athlete. She wanted to play soccer. There were no soccer league, youth soccer leagues in the Bronx except in Riverdale. You know, Riverdale's an upscale an neighborhood. An upscale, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. And there were so many children who would love the opportunity for exercise. You have empty parks and empty gyms. It has to be a policy priority. It seems that now the, the, the solution our policymakers have so selected on is let education be the vehicle to lift people out of poverty and do it through having students pass tests. And they say no excuses in terms of the surrounding conditions. But if you don't do something about the surrounding conditions, the young people are going to fall by the wayside for either stress, you know, you, they, depression. So you're saying they should take in the student's personal environment yeah. and the, the way they live and the, the house that they come from and the, yeah. whether they're, you know, one family house or one parent household, that should all be taken into consideration yeah. when training students or teaching students? Yeah, I think you should say everybody should have what 
Barack Obama's children have at the private school they attend. They should have art, they should have music, they should have exercise, they should eat healthy food, uh, they shouldn't have teachers based, you know, rated on the basis of their test scores. It should be a nurturing environment for children. And if the families can't afford it, um, you know, with their own incomes, I think we should create those opportunities as a, as a public. I grew up with that. That's the sad thing. People in the Bronx growing up in the 50s and 60s, including a lot of African-Americans and Latinos, had these amazing sports programs and music programs in the schools and exercise programs. They were all shut down. So, Professor Nason, where does the system break down? Like, starting with what? Where does it, it break it's down? It's the concentration of wealth at the top. When I was growing up, the top 1% made 9% of the income in New York City. Now it makes 44%. In the last three years, the top uh, 10% has taken 93% of national income. This, we're, we're a different country than we used to be. Different, and more selfish, you think? We're more economically polarized. The, the, so that the, the difference between the way... When I was growing up, look, there was a lot of racism. There was a lot of you know, gender discrimination. But the... The, 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 there was not this huge wealthy population which monopolized the resources and ended up starving the rest of the people. So how did we let this, how did this happen? How did it become so polarized? What happened that, that now the, the, the scale is so off balance? I think that uh, this was presented as a strategy to help the United States fight global economic competition. We need to lower taxes, unleash you know, the entrepreneurial class to create jobs and will all benefit through trickle-down economics. That, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. It may have happened for a while, but then it started turning in on itself and producing this incredibly parasitical class of people who just ripped the rest of us off. You know, I mean, that's the only way I can describe it and made fortunes while the rest of the people saw their wages go down and their income and falling into debt. And, you know, just look at my neighborhood in Brooklyn, Park Slope, or any neighborhood in the Bronx. Or look at Fordham and the, the world outside it. It's like a tale of two cities. So describe your experience when you're in Fordham and then when you step outside the gates. Okay, here... Look at it in the summer. There are all these kids sunbathing and throwing Frisbees. They're all slim. They go to the gym, you know. Inside Fordham's campus. Inside Fordham's campus. Or they take the Ram van to go to Manhattan clubs and restaurants. And then you go outside and you see people pushing strollers with three children hanging on. Everybody's like overweight. Every, you know, everybody's stressed. Um... And it's like a totally different world. People, families living, two, three families in an apartment. So you're saying this is an example of the bipolarization that's happening right in America. Yeah. Or go to Roosevelt High School across the street and you have to pass through metal detectors. It's like going into the airport. You, have, you almost have to be you have to be searched. The children of the Bronx deserve better. And the Bronx, I mean, all the Bronxes like it around the country. All lower income residencies in New York. And, yeah. and and beyond. And, and, and now the middle class 
is being pushed down. And Dr. Nason, you um, in your in your writings quoted the deputy director of the University Neighborhood of Housing Programs, who said New York's poorest renters are being priced out of other boroughs and are being herded into the West Bronx. Yeah, look the, at like you look at Harlem. I mean, you know, Harlem is not the Harlem it was ten years ago. And who, where are all the people who are pushed out by rising rents in Harlem going to the Bronx? Where are all the people being pushed out by rising rents in Inwood and Washington Heights or Greenpoint or now Bed-Stuy, which is looking more and more like Harlem? Um, I even wrote a rap about this called, not, do you want me to perform it? Yes, please. Okay, this is called, uh, it's an anti-gentrification rap called Not in the Bronx. So back in the day, New York was a place where people could find affordable space. We had Patterson and Forrest and Melrose, too, and 1520 Sedgwick, where hip hop grew. But the bankers took over the Lower East Side, raising our rents and killing our pride. Park Slope came next and Harlem, no doubt. If you didn't have money, you had to move out. Now, the Bronx is the place where we're making our stand wherever we come from. This is our land. We're from Ghana, the DR, Mexico, Virginia, Boricua, Antigua. Our spirit is in you. We drive your buses. We bring your food. We cure your illness in times bad or good. We need places to stay where our children can grow. If you keep raising rents, where will we go? <laughs> thank, thank you so much, Professor thank Nason. Thank you, Robin. I'm glad I had a chance to have my say. <laughs> my thanks to Mark Nason, Professor of African American Studies and History at Fordham University and Director of Fordham's Urban Studies Program. He's also the author of three books and a number of articles, as well as a weekly blog called With a Brooklyn Accent. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us. George Bodarki and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.